Maybe as you think about your testimony, when was the last time you had an opportunity to share your testimony, how you came to faith in Christ? Listen, sharing your testimony is a powerful way. It's a powerful way to point people to what God has done in you. And this is what Paul does in our text this morning. And if you have your Bible, I want you to go open it to Galatians. We're in the first chapter. This is our third message uh, in this series. All of the other messages are online uh, as we gather in our small groups. Um, if you're out of town, you're on vacation, had to work, all of the sermons go in hand in hand with our study guides. And when we get together, our group is meeting tonight. We're going to be discussing last Sunday's sermon. We weren't able to meet together this week. Uh, so we're coming uh, at, at the section that was our, our uh, section last week, 5 uh, verses six down, 6 down through 10. Today we're looking at verses 11 down through 24, and this is uh, the, the conclusion of the first chapter. And miraculously, Paul went from being a terrorist against the church to becoming the church's greatest evangelist. And it would leave everybody saying, how did this happen? What happened to this guy? I just picked up this book not long ago. Um, if you listen to Ravi Zacharias on the radio, this was one of his speakers, Nabil Koresh, who is now in heaven. And he went from being a follower, but more than a follower of Islam. He was a proponent of Islam to being a strong proponent for Christianity. And it leaves every, everyone saying, what happened? And as cancer ravaged him and took his life, how he preached the gospel in a way and God's sovereignty. I'm looking forward to reading uh, this book. But when you think about radical transformation, no one more radical than Saul of Tarsus becoming a follower of Jesus Christ and the Lord changing his name even to Paul. And from the, to borrow from the analogy last week, everyone would be saying, why did he change jerseys? He used to wear the jersey for Judaism, and now he is wearing the jersey that will end up taking his life. Why would anyone do this? He met Jesus. It's a plain and simple, straightforward answer. He met Jesus, the resurrected Lord Jesus. And it changed everything about him. Everything about his life changed. I love watching the fixer-upper shows. But the most significant aspect of these shows is the before and the after. The suspense is always built. They don't show you the full finished product until they wait. They want you to watch all the way to the end of the show. So they don't give it away. They go to a commercial right before. They act like they're going to pull the, the partition so you can, nope. You have to watch the, you know, 18 minutes of commercials and then we'll show you what is the finished product. Recently, I, I saw a show in Canada. A guy has all these old cars just out in the middle of the rust belt. And they're just sitting out there. Now he's retired. He's trying to fix all these cars. And it's the same thing. There's great beauty. There's just something about the story of redemption. Even if it's a classic car, it's sitting out there. It requires three or four to put together one good looking and, and they roll that car out and somebody invested into that piece of metal and now it's this treasure, and it's beautiful. We love the story of redemption. We love the Cinderella story. We love to see what people pass over and despise elevated as precious, elevated as glorious. As Paul points people to Christ, if you were to look at a before and after photo of this guy, 
This is a good analogy. What God did in Saul of Tarsus' life absolutely transformed him in a radical way. It took him from being the persecutor and turned him into a preacher. How does this happen? This morning, we're going to answer three questions, okay? As we uh, cut through this text, the first question, if we're going to get behind this kind of transformation, which is different than just religion, religion can't get this deep. Paul had religion. When he was Saul, he had all that religion had to offer. So there's three questions that we want to get at here. And number one, what is needed? What do you have to have to get this kind of transformation? What's necessary? The second question is, how? How does this transformation happen from the inside out, which is different than religion? Religion transforms people from the outside in, but it doesn't ever get deep enough. So how does this happen? And thirdly, what is the result? What's the outcome of this? What's needed? Okay. How does it happen in this way? And what is the end result of this kind of transformation? It can be summed up in the word metamorphosis. It's a beautiful picture, right? Goes into the cocoon and there's a change that happens. And it comes out a beautiful butterfly. Now I have the beautiful butterfly, you know? Coming from, what is that, Bugs Life movie? And he's like, can't fly, wings are small. This change, what did the butterfly do to cause this change? Work hard, set forth a plan when it was, you know, walking around, here, read some books on setting goals. No, this is all intrinsic. This is hardwired into this process. This is done by the creator. And this change that happens is all designed and it's inside out, it's intrinsic, but it is manifested externally. When we understand what the work is of the gospel, it changes us from the inside out. There's gonna be evidence, but what role do we have in this change? You can't tell this this little worm, try hard. Work hard at this. It simply does what it's designed to do, and God is the one that brings about this change in this creature's life. Jeremiah 13, 23 says this, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. You know, can you change your skin? Well, maybe with certain treatments, yes. But can the leper change his spots by sitting there thinking, change my spots? No. So how can you, who are accustomed to doing evil, do good? You can't. There's more chance of a leper changing his spots than for a person to say, you know what, I'm going to stop doing evil and I'm going to do that which is really purely good. As in holy. As in unblemished. As in no bad motives, no wrong motives. Absolutely pure. As in I'm equal to Jesus. Can't do it. 
So the gospel points out we can't, but the gospel points out it's done. I want us to keep two truths in mind this morning. And this is this, as we study through, how does this change happen? How does this metamorphosis take place in our lives? And the first truth is this, that God is God, not us. God is God, not us. Isaiah, the prophet says this in Isaiah 55, speaking on behalf of the Lord, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So we have to remember God is God, not us. I am not God and you can all be glad of that, right? God is God. And often when we wrestle in doubts and anxiety and fear and we go through the questions of why and why this and why not that, we are trying to ooch ourselves into the position of, you know, if I were God, then it wouldn't be like this. It wouldn't be like that. The second truth is this, that God is always working for our good and for his glory. We can know this in every situation in life. God is working for our good. And that is always for his glory. And Paul writes in Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are the called according to his purpose. We love God, we've been called. We love God, we've been called. He is working all things together for good. So let's read here. As Paul defended his apostleship, and he had defended his authority. He defended his message before the Galatian, and he calls them brothers. Galatians chapter 1, verse 11, he says this, for I would have you know brothers. Okay, so this is a term of endearment. He isn't throwing them away. He's pulling them in just through the pen, through this letter. He's putting his arms around them, and he's, he's laying his case out, and he, he calls them brothers. That's a term of endearment. He says, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 13, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, the religion of the Jews, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Now, if you underline in your Bible, this is a good spot to underline in verse 15. Because he's describing, I was headed this way. I was pursuing everything in Judaism. But then verse 15, it's like the sunrise happens and, the, and it crests over the hillside. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, another name for Peter, I remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, 
He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. This is the precious word of the Lord. This is the account of how a persecutor was turned into a preacher. And this morning, we're going to see this. And really, Paul hangs his arguments, and I want us to come away with the three words that are just going to ring out, gospel, grace, and glory. First of all, let's look at this word gospel. A gospel is a divine message. Paul is making a claim here. It's a big claim. It's a huge claim. He's claiming that his message was pure because it came directly from God. Now listen, beloved, he's not the only person to claim that they have a message from God. We have people like, oh, you know, Jesus visited me last night at the end of my bed. Oh, I had a dream. Oh, I had a vision. And usually it's connected to, I need a bigger airplane to add to my airplanes, or I need a bigger house, or I need something more. It always is connected generally to somehow something better for that person in their corner of the world. Paul is making a huge claim here that his message is pure because it came directly from God. It's the gospel. It's the good news. And we have to know this. Salvation cannot be achieved. It must be received. And that's what Paul is saying. Paul's message was not from man. It was not from man. And he says that right from the, from the outset. It's not man's gospel. For did I, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. This is not man's gospel. All self-help religions... And all systems of belief that are not from God can be designated from man, from earth. David Platt says it this way. He says, the gospel is like water. Man didn't create it, and man can't live without it. That is so good. The gospel is like water. Man didn't create it, and man cannot live without it. Let's talk about false religions. We're not going to spend a lot of time here. There are some religions, some beliefs, they're easy to recognize as a false system. They just blatant. They deny the deity of Christ. They deny the authority, the inerrancy of Scripture, Scientology, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam. They're just, they're easy to recognize. They're not Christian. But then there's there's some blended faith systems. And these are a little more difficult because they mix Christian foundations with human ideas or traditions, which is where Paul was coming out of in Judaism. There's just some systems of belief. They mix forms of Christianity with other traditions or works. So consequently, these beliefs are a little, they're harder to detect. Mormonism. You'll see those advertisements of, here's, you want your Bible? We'll mail you a Bible. Oh, and here is the Book of Mormon. We'll send with it. Jehovah's Witnesses will come by your door and they'll use, they'll use literature. They'll use pamphlets. And on that will be a representation of something that looks like an European Jesus. And they will use Jesus to, let's have Bible study and we'll give you the real secrets and we'll give you the real deep truths. But they come in disguised as, yeah, we're Christian too. There are so many religions mixing works with faith. But there's a third element that's even harder to detect. 
And this is where Christians who are often in Bible-believing church, Bible-believing church, and then they have a preference. They have something that is so important to them that they will elevate it to the point where it nearly equals salvation. And if you don't subscribe to what I think, what I feel, my opinion, you know what? I won't even stay in that church with you. I'll go find another church where they bless all of my rules. Oh, this is so difficult for church leaders to, to deal with, to work through. Because in these, there's an appearance of godliness. Often it has to do with dress, has to do with diet, has to do with all these peripheral things. And they elevate those up. And what is it? It's all about the external. And it misses the heart. It's not dealing with the heart at all. One of my pastor friends downriver, he shared this this week. I saw this. He said this. It was a quote that he found. And I wholeheartedly agree. He said, I, I would rather attend church with messed up people who love God than attend church with religious people who can't stand messed up people. Doesn't, isn't that good? Doesn't that just hit the n nail right on the head? I would rather attend church with messed up people who love God than religious people who dislike messed up people. I want everybody to know coming in this place, you're welcome. This isn't a gathering of people who have everything together. We simply have Christ. And that's the only thing that's good about us. Amen? Isn't that, isn't that like air into the room, oxygen into the, wow. So he doesn't wait on us. Just, just, just hear this in a family analogy. Child needs to be adopted. Parents begin pursuing adoption. But then they set the list out before they'll adopt this child of all those things the child needs to attain to before they will adopt them. And if we do adopt you, you will maintain that list and a few more. And if you don't, we will send you back. Suddenly that doesn't sound loving, does it? That's not love. The gospel is all about God's genuine love. So Paul is saying this. My message, it didn't come from men. My message is from God. See, the biblical message of salvation isn't like any of man's religions. Human religions ask their followers, try harder, do more, be more, work harder, measure up, and then we'll see, and hopefully you did enough, and you'll never know. It's like the carrot in front of the donkey. Never gonna get, just keeps following that carrot, probably cross-eyed. Religion doesn't get it done, but Christianity is this. It's not try, try harder. Christianity at its core is trust in Jesus. It's not try more, it's trust. Those two words are all the difference. Trust in Jesus. So Paul said, I received this message. Where's my source? Well, it wasn't, you know, a Christian school. It wasn't a Bible college somewhere. 
He didn't get an apostle course online. Here's my certificate out of Jerusalem. Nope. Paul didn't invent his message in some back cave or room. Paul is saying, my message is directly from heaven. It was a revelation. I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. His message was good news because his message was from God. This is the gospel. What is the gospel in its core? The life, the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying, I didn't make it up. I am an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus. My message is divine. His message was a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the same word that the apostle John would use for the last book in the, of the Bible. Revelation. Another way of saying is unveiling. It's disclosed. It was hidden. It was there. And it was Disclosed. And this is what Paul is saying, apocalypsis, all right? The apocalypse, okay? that This is the unveiling of Jesus Christ that Jesus was unveiled to Paul. So Paul didn't have a discounted. He didn't have the day-old bread. He didn't have a secondhand message. No, his message was all about, and he begins with that word, the gospel, the good news, but he says it's all about grace. That's our second word. And in this word grace, we see the apostle and he tells his testimony. He shares his story of how God changed him. And believe me, beloved, there was a definite change in his life. We see it in the pages of scripture. The gospel of grace is for all people. You know, Paul's testimony was an answer to prayer. There were people praying. Do you think they were praying for Saul of Tarsus to come to know Christ? Maybe somebody was. Maybe somebody got out in front of that massive train wreck that was happening in the church and persecution. Maybe somebody was saying, God, have mercy on his soul. Maybe they were around the day that Saul was there holding the coats as Stephen died and they had compassion and mercy and they took up Stephen's prayer, praying for those who put him to death. Maybe but if their prayers were a lot like ours, they were like, Lord, can you keep us safe? Can you not let our husbands be killed for following Jesus? Can you not let us lose our job for following Jesus? Could you bring our family back into fellowship with us who have cut us off because we follow Jesus? Were they even praying for this? I don't know. But God answered prayer. Was this what they were expecting? I don't think so. This is better than what they were expecting. So Paul shares his testimony. There's three parts to everyone's testimony. It doesn't matter whether you're Saul or you. Who were you before you came to know Christ? How did you come to know Christ? What's changed? Before Christ, met Christ, after Christ. These are the three parts of a testimony. And this is what Paul shares. In verses 13 to 14, he talks about life before trusting in Jesus. He talks about his former life. This is who I used to be. I was. He says he was sincere, but he was like many religious people, sincerely wrong. Listen to me, beloved. Sincerity, sincerity is not salvation. There are many sincere atheists. 
There are many sincere, you fill in the blank. Sincerity is not equal to salvation. So Paul is saying, here's who I was before I came to know Christ. I was brought up in Judaism. Even though his family lived in another country, his parents, they would have done everything to make sure Hebrew roots took place in his life. Their house, they would have spoken Hebrew. They would have made sure that as a baby, that Saul's first words would have been Hebrew. They would have observed all, everything. His father, a Pharisee. So he was brought up in Judaism. Now remember, what are the false teachers coming to these Gentile churches trying to get them to go into? Judaism. Mix Judaism with Christianity. Mix works with faith. And Paul is saying, no. If you add anything to grace, it ceases to be grace. He was brought up in Judaism. He was a persecutor of the church of God. Saul of Tarsus, most likely, he viewed himself like Elijah in the Old Testament. Remember Elijah calling down fire, prophets of Baal, Mount Carmel, all the prophets of Baal at the end of that duel were dead. That's how Saul probably viewed himself. I'm doing God a great service here. I'm, I'm kind of like Elijah. Elijah and Saul of Tarsus. That's prideful, but that's how he would have viewed himself. He wasn't wrong in what, where his thoughts were. He was, he was trying to do God a service. And he thought, who, who better would do God a service than me? Look at all that I'm doing and look at all that I know. He was violent against the church. He, he wrote to them. He said, I tried to destroy the church, to do away with the church. He wasn't playing around. And he was doing it all in the name of God. He was the one who was advancing in Judaism. All right? Judaism is a term. So throughout, throughout the New Testament, you don't see the term that much, Christianity and Christians. Because originally it was a term of a derogatory term. Oh, you're like little Christ. It, it was intended originally to be a slam against them, a dig against them. And in time they embraced it and said, We're, you want to call us Christians? We'll take that name. It, it, we would love to be called. We don't, we're not worthy of being called Christians, but we love Jesus so much that yes, we would take that name. So it was with Judaism. It started out originally as a religion of the Jews, like it would be a, like a, like a, a spitting on it. A, in, the, in the Gentiles and the Jews are scattered. Oh, here's the religion of the Jews, Judaism. And eventually Jews who were scattered turned and embraced that. Like we're okay with that. This is the religion of the Jews and they were Jews and they would embrace it and say, well, we'll take that name. And that's how we get the name Judaism. He was advancing. Paul is arguing here against those false teachers. I've already been there and done that. And I did it better than anyone who's coming to you trying to preach this other message, this other gospel. I was there. I was front row. I was on the field. I was the quarterback. And we were winning championships. They were vending in the corridors of the stadium. And now they're bringing to you something that I didn't know about? Do you see what he's writing to them, appealing to them? Paul was distinguished among his, among his peers. This guy was driven. 
When he was Saul of Tarsus, he was driven. He didn't just, well, what are we doing today? He was the one setting the course. He was distinguished among his people, among the Israelites. And what good did that do to deal with one sin in his life? Nothing. In all of his observing feasts, in all of his memorizing and following all that he did, Isaiah 64, 6 still says this. We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. All that Paul, when he was called Saul, was doing as a Pharisee was just incurring more debt, more sin, murderer, add that to the list, blasphemer, filled with pride, he says, I was extremely zealous for the tradition of the Jews. He wasn't just devoted to keeping the Torah. He was a person who was committed and was keeping the oral tradition. The Torah was like many, like Galatians, okay? Six chapters. You should see some of the commentaries on Galatians. Huge commentaries on one book. Paul was committed to keeping all the commentaries on the commentaries on the Torah. And every time it expanded, the oral tradition, it wouldn't be written down, it was passed down. You had to remember it. And so there were teachers like Hillel and Paul's teacher was Gamaliel and they were the ones in trust. They were the teacher and Paul sat at his feet and Paul was pursuing, it was going to be next, Hillel, Gamaliel, Saul. And something happened. And Gamaliel lost his superstar person when Saul became a follower of Jesus Christ. None of this washed away one sin. None of this could ever make Saul or any of us perfect and holy in God's sight. He was filled with pride. Listen to what John Stott says about Saul of Tarsus. He was a bigot and a fanatic, wholehearted in his devotion to Judaism and his persecution of Christ and the church. Now, a man in that mental and emotional state is in no mood to change his mind or even to have it changed for him by men. Didn't Stephen try that? I believe Stephen went head to head, toe to toe with Saul of Tarsus in the synagogues and Saul never won against this guy. Where'd he come from? What farm league did he come out of? And he always beats me. This is it. He's, he's not going to be changed. Listen, he says this. No conditioned reflex or other physiological device could convert a man in that state. Only God could reach him. And God did. God changed him. This guy, he wasn't going to change. Saul wasn't going to just change course. You weren't going to sit down with him, have a conversation and say, yeah, you're right. You, you win. And so it goes with your family members and your coworkers. You, you're not just going to sit down and just, just convince them, arm wrestle them with an argument. It takes the work of God for their eyes to open, for their heart to soften, for them to walk away from their whole religious resume. So how does a person come to faith in Christ then? See, this is conversion. And Paul says, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace. 
How does this happen? God intervened. God intervened in his life. He was headed this way, and God intercepted and said, no, go this way. It's a 180 degree change. Something happened. I've told you before, I was drowning in my grandpa's lake. I was, what, four years old, three years old, four years old. I was out on a little raft. My dad and I had been on the day before. It wasn't that big of a lake, but when you're three, four years old, it's huge. I threw a stick, it was like an old cane fishing pole into the water and I'm standing on this little Tom Sawyer looking raft and I'm looking out like, I need that back. I just jumped in after it. My grandma was watching from the window in the kitchen. Victor! He comes running down the hill, all this tall of him. He reaches off the dock, reaches down in the water. I was drowning, but my grandpa grabbed me by the arms and pulled me out of the water and I'm here today. Something changed the course that could have been a drastic day, I guess, for my family. My grandpa changed the course of that by my grandma watching. And he responded and he went after me. Saul of Tarsus, but when he lifted him up, moved him over, put him on a completely different set of tracks. It's kind of like Martin Luther an Augustinian monk. He was relentless in his zeal. He would wear out the priests in confession, trying to confess every single, everything. And he would leave confession and be, oh, I forgot something. And he would wear out the priests. They're like, come on, enough already. We got things to do. So what'd they do? They said, why don't you teach the book of Romans? They sent him to Rome. Maybe Rome can deal with him. And it was in Rome that the book of Romans and the whole principle, the truth of the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. And God opened his eyes. It's not anything I can do. It's what God has done. You'll see on your worship guide, there's just a, a quote there on, on the page. It's a Martin Luther quote. The law says, do this. And it's never done. Grace says, believe in this. And everything is already done. This is such a powerful quote. This is where, and don't, don't lose the idea of adoption. As we think about salvation and we think about grace, and someone would say, well, then... Are you telling me that if I trust in Christ, I can do whatever I want and I'm still going to heaven? Because that sounds like an easy believism. That sounds too easy. That sounds too good to be true. And I think people would take advantage of that. Now, this is grace. And Paul lived the rest of his life knowing how much God had forgiven him and loved him and redeemed him. And it was all of Christ. So he lived the rest of his life and he lived the rest of his life for the glory of Christ. And if you look on the back page, it's really, it's the five solas of the Reformation. And in the 1500s and the 1600s, when the scriptures began being printed and put into the hands of people so that they could read the message from God. And this is what the, the first sola fide, our justification before God is not by works, but by faith in Christ alone. That's, we receive this through faith alone. What about the scriptures, sola scriptura? 
Our only final authority is the word of God. The Bible is the only infallible and sufficient rule for governing issues of life and doctrine. It's not me, beloved, or any other man. Solus Christus. It's on the basis of Christ's work because Jesus Christ is the sole mediator between God and man. Salvation is possible only by his death and resurrection. And this leads us to grace. It's all by grace, God's grace alone, sola gratia. Our justification and salvation are both solely by the sovereign grace of God and not dependent on any action or condition man provides. And where does this all lead? Soli Deo Gloria. The purpose of our creation is to bring glory to God. All glory and honor is due to God alone. It is not to you. It is not to me. We love our church, but our church can't save us. Only God can do that in Christ. And so Paul is saying, I was set apart. I was set apart, he said, before I was born. Before he was born. That's what Paul says, before I was born. What did he do wrong and what did he do right? Before he was born. This has nothing to do with his works, good works, bad works. Beloved, there's no way you can get around the sovereignty of God when we read this in the pages of scripture that he called, he set me apart before I was born. This is so rich. Paul saw himself in the line of Jeremiah, Isaiah, and even John the Baptist. They were called out. They were separated to, to be God's servant before they were born, before they did anything. God's plan was unfolding in their birth, not originating in their birth. So listen now, God was in control before creation. God was in control when Saul was conceived by his parents in a foreign land. In a, in a Hebrew home. God was in control when Saul was persecuting the church. The Lord wasn't weak. The Lord was not removed from the suffering of the believers. The Lord was patient and merciful so that many would not perish. And when you and I are going through suffering, how easy is it for us to say, I don't think God cares right now. I don't think God knows what's going on. God was sovereign when Saul was overseeing the persecution of the church. God is sovereign when Saul was overseeing the execution of Stephen. He wasn't on vacation that day. God was in control when Saul was converted to follow Christ. And God was in control when Paul was on mission in life. And listen, when, God, when, when Saul became Paul and at the end of his life and his head was chopped off, God was sovereignly in control on that day too. And that's how Paul would say, you know what? If you're gonna leave me alive, I'm gonna tell you about Jesus. If you kill me, I'm gonna be with Jesus. So time's wasting. What's it going to be? And repeatedly, if you read the book of Acts, he shares his testimony everywhere he goes because no one could say, oh, that's not true. No, they all knew it to be true. You were headed this way. Something happened. And that left everybody saying, what happened? Why the change? Why did he go from being a persecutor to a preacher? How did that happen? And Paul says, before I was born, I, and I was called by his grace. I was called out. This is sovereign grace. This is when he was called to salvation. 
How was he, how was he called in salvation? He says the answer, grace. Beloved, how was I saved? Oh, because you were born in a pastor's home. No. Because you're a pastor. No. Grace. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God. Oh, the gift of God, the free gift. I hear those words from Vacation Bible School. It's a free gift. It's a free gift. In Jesus Christ, our Lord. How are you saved if you're here in Christ this morning? Grace, for by grace... Are you saved through faith? It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ, how can you be saved? Call on the name of the Lord. The Lord is good to those who are Jews, Gentiles. There's one way to be saved. It's turn from your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus. Put your full weight down on him. So Paul was called to salvation and grace. He was called to ministry. He was set apart to preach the gospel. He was converted to Christ. And he describes it this way, when he was pleased to reveal his son in me. Do you understand what Paul was doing when he was Saul his whole life, trying to please God? And I'm trying to please you and I'm trying to do this and I'm trying to do that. And I don't do those things and I observe these feasts and I go here and I go there and I'm a good Jewish boy and I'm doing all these things and I'm, I'm the best of the best and I'm better than you and I'm better than you and I'm beyond you and I got more memorized than you. He kept working and it, it's never enough. Trying to please God and never could arrive. He said, you know how this all changed? When God was pleased to reveal his son in or to me, it's really hard to discern. Is he talking about he was revealed in me or to me or through me? It's hard to unpack that original language. There's some ambiguity there on purpose because all of it is involved. Christ was revealed in Saul of Tarsus. He became Paul. He was clear. He was revealed to him and he was revealed through him everywhere he went as he pointed people to Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, Paul was immediately freed from two aspects. He was immediately freed from pride and he was immediately freed from guilt because though he was the best of the best, I'm better, and he could say this, I know more than this student. I know more than that student. I almost know as much as my teacher. Matter of fact, I'm passing up my teacher. That leads to pride. I don't do that. I don't. He's like the, the person praying, I thank thee that I'm not like them. I'm separated from them. And, I, and I'm going to persecute these followers of Jesus, the followers of the way. I'm pride. He's filled with pride. And at the same time, he's filled with guilt. There has to be more that I need to do. I, I still don't feel holy and perfect. And, and I, I'm still not like God. And the moment he trusted in Christ, he's delivered from both aspects of pride and guilt. He's set free. And we just sang about that today. C.H. Spurgeon, one night, he sneaks into the back of a church on a snowstorm. Pastor didn't even make it to church. There's a deacon preaching. Last minute, the sermon probably wasn't all that great. The guy was probably pretty nervous. His message was look and live. And he looked to Spurgeon in the back of the room. And he said, young man, look to Jesus and live. And the scales dropped off his eyes. And he went from 
viewing Jesus as an afterthought or no thought or despising him to seeing him in all of his beauty. And he looked to Christ, was forgiven of all his sin, redeemed by grace, and was used mightily to preach the gospel. Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 4, 6 that God opens the eyes of believers so that they might behold, and here's what he writes, God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. So Paul was called, he was converted, he was commissioned to preach. He said, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, this is a fulfillment of God's promise all the way back in Genesis 12 to Abraham, in your seed, I'm gonna bless all nations. And Paul sees this great commission that Jesus gave in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples, all nations. Acts 1, 8, he saw his ministry as a, fulfill, a fulfillment of Old Testament covenant with Abraham. He was sent to evangelize, to share the gospel as a fisher of men and allow God to draw in the net. This is how the Galatian churches were born. So he's not just off on a tangent. He's saying, those people are telling you, you have to mix works with salvation. I'm from that. I was that. I was the best of the best in that. And God saved me and I came and I brought you the message from heaven that set me free, that set you free. And why are you going back? And why are you admiring their jersey? I used to wear that jersey. Why? I've been set free. And then he moves in verses 16 to 23 of how everything changed after he came to faith in Christ. What changed? Everything. Everything changed. He said, now, now I, there, everything. There was three years in preparation for the ministry of the gospel. Paul's mis- message wasn't a spinoff. It wasn't a hand-me-down. Anybody have to grow up wearing hand-me-downs? I didn't except one picture. I hope that picture is destroyed, but I don't think it is. My mom, somebody in our church made something thinking that my mom was going to have a girl, some like coat or something. And I remember she's like, oh, here, take this picture, wear this coat. And I'm standing on our porch in Montana. She's taking my picture. And I remember being like, why are we taking this picture? Like, oh, I want to send it to him. Like, why? I don't know. I can't always figure out what moms do, but I'm still trying to wrestle on that one. He was prepared. His message isn't a hand-me-down. He doesn't have a second-rate message that, well, I wasn't really there on the front row with Jesus, so I heard everything from the apostles, and they gave me their thumbs up, so now I have a ministry. Uh Uh-uh. When he was saved, when he was called to faith in Christ, if he would have relocated to Jerusalem, he would have been a superstar in Jerusalem. He would have had doors open. Ministry would have been amazing and pretty easy for him. But that's not what God had for him. He went out and carved new territory. For three years, this is what he's laid. I went out to Arabia and then back to Damascus. Oh, that's real easy. Huh? He had some time that he needed to be educated. He needed to get his message firsthand. Then he says, there's 15 days I had in verses 18 to 20, building friendships. And there he was given perspective, not permission from Peter. He didn't get any 
Peter, okay, you're good, Paul. We accept you because Jesus had called him and commissioned him. He received from Peter eyewitness information. Imagine, I haven't been to Jerusalem. Can you imagine Peter giving you the tour of Jerusalem? All right, come on, Paul. Yeah, here's the upper room. Go ahead, open. We walk up to the upper room. Right here. Jesus was right here. We were right here wondering what, what was going on. Judas went out that door. Let, let's go over to the garden. Yeah, right here. Jesus, we were over here. I was sleeping. It was a horrible night. I'm so embarrassed. He asked us to, and I'm sleeping, and the other guys too, and Jesus was praying over there about a stone's throw away. And then here's where the soldiers came in that night of his betrayal. Here's where the 5,000 was. We, he, we, Jesus, you know, we gave him that lunch, and he fed them. So 15 days, Paul is able to go with Peter, build a friendship and ministry. There's a camaraderie, but it's not permission. He said, oh, and there was another apostle that I met, James, the Lord's brother. Yes, Jesus had siblings. Jesus' father was not Joseph. His mother was Mary. But Mary and Joseph, Matthew, the end of Matthew 1 tells us, after Jesus was born, then they came together and there were other siblings. And here, Paul is saying, I met James, the Lord's brother. Well, are you sure he's maybe not fudging there? Oh, verse 20. In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Just in case you were wondering. It's like I met him, but they didn't give me permission. They gave me perspective. And then I took off from there and 11 years I was out preaching preaching this message of grace, the gospel of God, the gospel of Christ. He was a minister to the Gentiles during this time. He ministered in Syria. He was a nobody there. That was a hard mission field there. He was a minister in Cilicia. That's his hometown where Tarsus is. There he was rejected by his family. He was a minister there and he was a mystery to the Jews. Yet he was affirmed. He was unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. He wasn't under their authority. He didn't need their permission. He was ministering. And this is what they knew. He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destore, destroy. Have you ever heard this before? There's a lot of funerals where I share before we close with amazing grace, the epitaph of John Newton. That's on his tombstone. Once a slave trader, met Christ, and then everything changed. You ever known anybody racist? Do you just sit down with them in one conversation and they just change their mind and throw away all their bad thinking? No. That's what happened to John Newton. Listen to what's written on his tombstone, John Newton, clerk. Once an infidel, okay, this is before Christ, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of the slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and, that's how he met Christ, here's after Christ, appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. You know who he saw in himself? What God did for Saul and turned him into Paul? Yeah, that's what he did for me. And it's all about his grace. Paul was received by the Jewish brethren, the false teachers were doing their best to ridicule him in his message, but he was converted, he was changed. Was it by his work or God's grace? And where does it all lead to? It's our third word, glory. You see just how this chapter ends? And they glorified God because of me. This is the desired result. 
the gospel of grace, when it's received, brings glory to God. Paul's transformation elicited praise. And they, the Jewish believers, you're saying somebody has something from Judaism that we're missing? The Jewish believers are commending me. They glorified God because of what he did in me. So listen this morning, beloved. You may reject or you may receive the gospel, but I urge you, don't ignore the gospel. Don't ignore the gospel. How will you respond? How will you respond? Our purpose statement says we exist to glorify God. This is the end of all things. We want God to receive the glory. So this is a direct fulfillment of Jesus commanding his disciples, let your light shine in Matthew 5, 16, and they will glorify your father in heaven. And it's in the middle of persecution. And Stephen would hear that calling and Stephen would die and he would let his light shine and Saul would hear the testimony and Saul would come to faith in Christ and let his light shine. And what are people doing? They're glorifying the father in heaven. How will that happen in our lives? How will we respond to this message? What opportunities are there for you to let your light shine? Make a phone call. Go visit someone. Our Wednesday night ministry with our kids is just, there's people here ready to serve, to let the light shine, the gospel. The rummage sale coming up for the Yazidis through light of life. It's an opportunity for us to increase and let God be glorified in what is happening through Irfan in the Middle East. Our outreach on the night of Halloween, October 31, this place is going to be alive and jumping. Why? Because we want to let the light shine so that people come to glorify God, gospel, grace, and glory. On those three words, Paul says, I'm an apostle and I have a message from heaven and you can take that to the bank. Oh, I praise God for his gospel, for his grace and for his glory. Wherever you are this morning, if you haven't come to Christ yet, then I urge you come today. Receive him today. If you say, well, not not yet. I, I need some more time. Then I'm thankful that you're here. Please keep coming. Please keep searching. Know what your next step is. If you're so thankful that God has saved you, have you developed your testimony that maybe this week you would have an opportunity to share how God saved you, how he has changed you. Let's stand together. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your gospel and I thank you for your grace. And I thank you that all things are to your glory. You are good and you are faithful and we worship you. And when we think about how all things are directed to the intended end, that many will worship around the throne of Jesus and we will sing the song, worthy is the lamb who was slain. You were slain because of my sin. You were slain because of our sin. You were our substitute so that you might rescue us from sin, death, and hell. And so we praise you and we, we worship you. And we invite everyone that we know to trust in you and trust in you alone. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your gospel. It's from heaven. And we long to live to the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name, amen.